um, and I was instructed to perform sexual acts and all the things. And that's when I realized that the photos were obviously being used as a marketing tool. I didn't know about, you know, Craigslist and Backpage and all the things back then, but I knew that they were definitely being posted somewhere yeah. um, or advertised somewhere for these individuals to, for these buyers, for these men to to come, right? And know exactly what I look like and know exactly what to expect. Join us this July for our hashtag Stop the Demand campaign as we raise awareness to help stop the demand for pornography and sexual exploitation. We invite you to educate yourselves and others on how the porn industry fuels the demand for exploitation, sex trafficking, objectification, and more. Learn more and get involved in the campaign at ftnd.org forward slash stop. That's ftnd.org forward slash stop. My name is Garrett Johnson, and you're listening to Consider Before Consuming, a podcast by Fight the New Drug. And in case you're new here, Fight the New Drug is a non-religious and non-legislative organization that exists to provide individuals the opportunity to make an informed decision regarding pornography by raising awareness on its harmful effects using only science, facts, and personal accounts. We want these conversations to be educational, uplifting, and hopeful as we sit down with experts, influencers, activists, and people with personal accounts, we cover a wide variety of topics that may be triggering to some. You can refer to the episode notes for a specific trigger warning. Listener discretion is advised. Today's episode is with Kathy Givens. She grew up in Canada and moved to Texas during her adolescence. After high school, she was introduced to a guy who, unbeknownst to her, would become her trafficker. Because of the psychological manipulation that she experienced at the hands of her trafficker, she spent almost an entire year in the life of sex trafficking. During this conversation, we talked about how she entered the life of sex trafficking, how her family and friends played a significant role as she exited the life, and what she's up to today. With that being said, let's jump into the conversation. We hope you enjoy this episode of Consider Before Consuming. Well, Kathy, we want to say thank you for joining us today on the podcast. I am excited to have this conversation. It's a very important conversation and it means a lot to me. So thank you for having me on and for the invitation. Yeah, absolutely. As I was preparing for the conversation, I learned a lot about you and all that you're up to. And to name a few of your titles, you're a wife, a mother, an author, a playwright, an advocate, a consultant, a co-founder, and that's just to name a few. I'm sure you have some other ones that I've missed, but that's a, that's a lot. You that's are up a to a lot. Of all those titles, which are you most proud of? Definitely the family component, the wife and mom. Yeah, that's what I thought you'd say. That's what I hoped that you would say. Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> well, that's cool. Um, this might be considered a loaded question, but at what point are you going to stop adding titles to your resume? (laughs) (laughs) You know what? That may be impossible because, you know, this is a lifestyle 
just um, restoration, I say, is always like a lifelong journey for mm-hmm. me. And so really, it's just me living life to the fullest. Yeah. When you were young, did you sit down and you were like, I want to be a wife, a mom, an author, a playwright, an advocate? Was that your life goal to become all these things? Or what did you want to be when you were young? You know what? I wanted to write. That one I can say okay. <laughs> for sure. I wanted to be a writer. I loved writing. Um, and then, yeah, I did. I guess growing up, I did want to be a wife. I don't know about the mom thing. Didn't think I'd be good at it. But hey, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's such a great, that's like one of my favorite um, titles. It's such a rewarding job. Oh, yeah. I have... I have kids as well. I should say we have kids. My wife and I, we have kids. And man, it's rewarding and exhausting and all of the all the things in between too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's fun though, right? Oh, it's fun. It's great. I always say that moments of bliss are not free. And there so definitely lots of moments of bliss and you have to pay the price for them. Absolutely. I love that. I might, I might use that. Well, you have my permission. It's trademarked, <laughs> but you... No, I'm just joking. It's not trademarked. <laughs> <laughs> well, in your spare time, you run a nonprofit called 1211. <laughs> and uh, that is a survivor-led and survivor-focused organization. Yeah. Why are you proud that it's survivor-led and survivor-focused? To see survivors and overcomers show up in this space to pour out and to give back, it just brings me so much joy. That, to me, is a just a different level of healing mm-hmm. that speaks volumes to the restorative journey of one that has gone through something like I've gone through, right? Um, it's like, wow, when we get to the level of giving back, it's unstoppable. Mm. And to me, you know, that's a clear sign that trafficking can end because if it can end for one, it can end for all. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And Man, you mentioned the word trafficking, and that's the focus of this conversation. And I know that oftentimes as we talk about trafficking, we rattle off the legal definition. Yeah. And that's important to know, but also I'm curious to know, like, what is, like, if you can describe what is sex trafficking without using the legal definition. I love that you ask this question because a lot of individuals that are experiencing or have experienced trafficking don't call it that. So I'm going to explain it um, not from the side of the advocate that I've become, but from an individual who has experienced it without like using the term trafficking, right? So literally it's a business structure. It is taking someone's body, using someone's body for profit. And that's the simplest term that I can that I can find. Um, what is your preying on individuals' vulnerabilities and seeing it as an asset to use those vulnerabilities for profit and for capital gain, right? And so, at all cost, any expense, um, whatever it takes, you're going to use that asset as many times as humanly possible to make as much money as humanly possible um, before that quote-unquote asset is no longer needed or no longer can be used. Mm. Um, So it's a business structure. You have the facilitator, you have the individual who is 
organizing this, right? Like who is making the profit. And so in order to make a profit, they need supply. And unfortunately that's the victim. And so the victim then meets the demand. And unfortunately those are what we call buyers. And so it's this whole system. And that's literally what sex trafficking is. Yeah. Well, thanks for speaking to that. I just want to acknowledge that sometimes my heart gets heavy having these conversations because of the realities of what's what happens. The fact that you had to experience what you experienced, and we'll, we'll dive into that later, is heartbreaking and like unimaginable. I can't, I can't fathom what you had to experience. Now that I've acknowledged that, that I'm weak and that, <laughs> and that, um, this is a heavy conversation. I think it's important to have heavy conversations about this because it's all about education. And if the goal is to end sex trafficking, then we have to face the reality of what, what is happening out there. This might be a loaded question, or not a loaded question, but it might require a lot of context um, from you. I'm curious how you became involved, because you're a co-founder of 1211. Right. And so I'm just curious, like, how did that evolve? How did 1211 become what it is today? And how did you become involved in that process? Sure. Um, from my journey of overcoming trafficking, I have been able to just um, participate through volunteerism or work with organizations and agencies that are working so hard every day um, to combat this thing. And it's a unique lens that I had the opportunity to view from an overcomer, from a survivor lens, and then but from like now an advocate lens. And through that process, that entire process, I was able to see some of the gaps, right, that existed in our efforts to combat and to fight human trafficking. And one of those gaps were um, post-residential care, so meaning after individuals have graduated from like these programs, these um really, really great trauma-informed programs, either short-term or long-term to walk alongside individuals who have experienced trafficking, get them back on their feet, you know, um, get them some counseling and therapy and all the things that they need. A lot of times after they left those programs, they were, they were kind of left on their own. And this isn't intentional, but just thinking about the capacity that agencies have, usually the programs are like six to 18 months. So after 18 months, these individuals would be reintegrated back into the community and kind of just expected to thrive and using the skills that they learned from these organizations to like thrive. But it's so much harder than that, right? Like yeah. 18 months is not enough time um, to kind of rebuild and to, to build period after you've experienced such a crime like that. Yeah. So 1211 was a response to that gap. Like we want to walk alongside individuals even after they've graduated from these programs but then also walk alongside individuals who don't even choose to go to programs the program is not for everyone but people still need care people still need support and so 1211 was founded in response to that i am a co-founder my husband is a co-founder um, and so together we just took on this mission to um, respond to that gap and try to try to be the support that people need and support other agencies as well. Like I talked about, the capacity is just almost impossible to walk with someone um, from the time of exit 
all the way, like five years down the line, right? It's, it's yeah. really hard to do that, but people need it. And we saw that because like at the height of the pandemic, especially like people were going back um, into the lifestyle of trafficking or um, at risk of being re-exploited and right. re-victimized. And so this was like a, an urgent thing to get this started. Yeah. Well, I have a lot of questions based off what you said. Um, the first question I have is, what was it about the pandemic that made it higher risk for people? Um, like, how did the pandemic negatively impact those populations that are most vulnerable to becoming victims of trafficking or entering the life of trafficking? Sure. So people were losing their jobs left and right. So I'll talk about the individuals that made it out. So they exited at one time or the other mm -hmm. um, and then may have turned their life around and got like really good, good jobs and stuff like that or the jobs that were afforded to them. And then the pandemic hit and businesses were closing down. Yeah. People's hours were cut. And so these individuals, you know, when your back is against the wall, what do you do? You turn to what you know, right? And it's just unfortunate, but that was that was what was happening. And then for the people that were still in it, the numbers soared because people, again, people were at home, bored, and we're talking about buyers, right? right? People were at home, bored, so they'd go for a drive, and along their drive, they just happened to, you know, um, encounter an individual that that had that was being trafficked, right. and so traffickers were very aware of this, and they pushed their victims out to even make more, right? Like to to do more work and and force them to do more more work because they understood that a lot of people were kind of just isolated. Yeah. And when you're isolated, you turn to, you know, unfortunately some of the negative things, not everything, not everyone turned to positive things. Right. Right. Um, and so that elevated, that increased a lot. And again, a lot of these individuals that were even trying to get out of the life, maybe they were on their way out. Like, so kind of just doing this, part-time or whatever, you know, just trying to like, one foot in, one foot out, right. going to school, getting jobs. When those hours were cut or when those jobs were lost, they were stuck. And so we saw an increase for sure. It affected so many people and so many victims and survivors. Yeah, that's kind of unexpected. I think the a lay person wouldn't, wouldn't uh, predict that. Yeah. But it's like some type of situational exploitation, like where that unpredictable situation happened with the pandemic and then those exploiters are going to do what they do and that's exploit. Exactly. That makes sense. Um, you mentioned that when you were young, you wanted to be a writer, you wanted to be a wife, you weren't sure about the mother thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> but um, I'm just kind of curious because you've talked briefly today about how you are a an overcomer and a survivor of trafficking but i'm kind of curious like of your in regards to your upbringing like what was life like for you growing up it was great i was born in canada and to uh, jamaican parents which if anyone has jamaican parents they already know like i can like end this interview now and they're like oh okay i get it <laughs> <laughs> what do you but, mean <laughs> they're like really strict right oh, um, okay. very very like hey you're gonna go to school and you're going to be great and that's like it like okay. yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. my that's my expectation yeah um no dating no nothing in between but i loved i loved my household i had such a supportive family extended family um in canada 
But my parents did get a divorce at a very when I was very young. However, my mom stepped in to fill in a lot of those gaps, right? As being a single parent. And she was awesome at it. Like she did a really great job in raising my siblings and I just to be independent and to be strong and to be wise. And she did a really great job at single parenting. So for me, you know, I didn't know that that was a vulnerability until hindsight because it was I had a great life. Yeah. And then so at around 13, 14 or so, my mom decided to move to Texas. And literally like the conversation was, we're going to go visit Texas because we had like family members in Texas. Mm -hmm. And so we're like, we're going to go visit. She's like, we're going to go visit Texas and we're going to go on summer vacation. It's going to be great. And I tell people as I share, (laughs) like literally like this is the longest summer vacation I've ever been on because I'm still in Texas. And so my mom decided to stay and um, it just so happened that summer, it was like the end of Texas's summer, right? And so mm-hmm. it was t- almost time to, re- to to enroll in school. So it was like, hey, you're just going to stay here. And so I never got a chance to like say, to properly say goodbye to like all of my friends, my community, everyone that I love, my family, my church, like everyone. I just never had that opportunity to say a proper goodbye. And I was always a little, you know, kind of bitter about, yeah, <laughs> about that. You know, sure. as a kid, it's like, what? This is yeah. crazy. And so coming to Texas, moving to Texas was a big deal. They say everything is bigger in Texas. And um, that includes the expectations. I was in Canada playing with Barbie dolls and Cabbage Patch Kids. And then when I moved to Texas, it was like, oh, no, like you have to be in the popular crowd, like in, in high school. You have mm. to be in the popular crowd. You You're expected to date. You're expected to speak a certain way, you're expected to do this and that. And I kind of think that that would have probably happened if I would have stayed in Canada anyways, because it was me transitioning to high school, right? And so transitioning to high school, but then transitioning to high school in a new country was like a culture shock. It was huge. So I think that just opened up a lot of you know, insecurities for me, even though I didn't acknowledge those insecurities, I was really just kind of going through high school like a chameleon, I called myself. Whatever people wanted me to be, I just mm-hmm. turned into that person because I was trying to figure out like who I was. And granted, at 14, 15, 16 years old, that's the time that, you know, teens start figuring that out anyways. Like, yeah, that's the exploring. typical time. Yeah. Without, yeah. even without the big transition you had to go from Canada to Texas like even without that adolescence is tough it is it's tough but it was good my mom was great my family was great I had a really good solid upbringing and I don't know it's just it was I have really good memories well I have to ask which has higher expectations Texans or Jamaican parents oh gosh Jamaican parents (laughs) (laughs) that combo that combo together exactly that that added a lot of pressure Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> well, it sounds like you had a, a great childhood. And um, so now I'm curious, like, how did you enter into the life of, of trafficking? Yeah, so remember I spoke about my upbringing and not really acknowledging those insecurities. Mm-hmm. And I believe that before I was able to acknowledge those insecurities, someone else did that for me, oh. my vulnerabilities for me. And so that happened to be an individual that I was introduced to through a mutual friend. This is after high school. Um, and now I'm like in college and 
with friends and you know how it is like we all decided to take classes together and stuff and one of my friends came back and she said that she met this band and they were so cool and they were inviting her back to hang out with them but they wanted her to bring some friends i happened to be one of those friends and so we all it was like a group of us went to go hang with this band and um it was fun it was actually fun you know that's i think I pause there because a lot of times when I'm telling my story, people think, oh, okay, that's when it happened because you shouldn't have went. But actually, no, it was actually really fun. We yeah. hung out and we did it for about, this This went on for about four months or so, just four to six months, just hanging out. Um, and then the invitations started to change. And it was no longer, hey, girls, come hang out with us. It was like, Kathy, I want to hang out with you and only you. And this invitation was coming from the leader of the band who happened to be the most skillful, the most talented, the gift of charm. You know, he was good looking, all of the things. And I believe, like I said, he just saw those insecurities. So those those months of hanging out was really just a an assessment of like, who is the weakest link in this group? And I just happened to be the Lucas Link. Even though I came from a great family, I didn't have a father in the home. My other friends did, right? I didn't, I, I wasn't um, as strong and opinionated. I was kind of like that chameleon that was in high school. Well, she never changed, right? She was mm. still kind of trying to figure out her way. And I think he identified that as well. Yeah. And so I accepted these invitations, these solo invitations to hang out with him. And again, it was great. It was us just going to his studio and, you know, I just was kind of his sidekick, I guess. But in my mind, I was like his girlfriend, you know, because he was only asking me to do certain things. And he would give me, you know, he would shower me with affirmations of like, you're so smart and I'm so glad that, you know, you're mine and, th you know, things like that. Right. And so I thought that I was in this full fledged relationship and about a year this goes on and at about the end of that year he says that he wants me to help him with his record label again no red flags because this is what he does anyways he knew celebrities he was already in that kind of life right and so I accepted and the proposal was hey we have to leave Houston Texas and go to Dallas Texas which was about four hours away and we're going to meet some investors that are going to invest in this record label. And I just need you to come with me because like you're a part of this team and it's going to be our legacy and, you know, using verbiage like that. And so I accepted, went to Dallas. Um, and literally like when we got to Dallas, I used to say that that's when he turned into a monster. But now through, you know, learning who I am and, and looking back at that experience, now I say that's when my eyes were opened to who he truly was. Yeah. Because I was so blinded by this relation, this facade of a relationship. And so when we got to Dallas, my eyes, the blinders came off and I saw like he was violent. He was, you know, basically I had no, there was no training, right? There was no like, hey, there's no talk. Like, hey, I'm about to traffic you now. Or you're about to be forced to do these kind of things. It was like, hey, we're this take this, we're going to take pictures, do this, do that. And it was like an outer body experience because everything for me in my perspective happened so fast, so quickly. Yeah. Um, and that was literally the entrance into the lifestyle of trafficking. So you take these photos and then how did it transition from photos to actually participating in, in trafficking? 
that's when I realized um, when people would come to the hotel room that we were in after taking these photos, just random men would come to the hotel room um, and I was instructed to perform sexual acts and all the things. And that's when I realized that the photos were obviously being used as a marketing tool. I didn't know about, you know, Craigslist and Backpage and all the things back then, but I knew that they were definitely being posted somewhere um, or advertised somewhere for these individuals to, for these buyers, for these men to, to come, right? And know exactly what I look like and know exactly what to expect. So it was used for that purpose too. Um, and it happened, like, again, it just happened really quickly. Yeah. Prior to this moment, like all of this happens and then you start realizing like, whoa, this is actually happening. Prior to that, did you have any idea about what sex trafficking was not at all i just thought that i was in a crazy relationship with with the guy that had crazy fantasies i don't know like i just thought he was just like this kind of stuff right and he was just nuts um i just didn't think that it was i didn't think there was a name for it yeah wow and during this time were you able to like leave the hotel and have a life outside of this situation or were you held against your will there So it's crazy because I was not able to leave on my own, but I was taken to like the mall to go shopping (laughs) for um, the appropriate quote unquote clothing to fit that lifestyle. Um, I was taken to get my hair done. I was taken to get my nails done, make, make sure I had the right makeup, like all the things. I was like a it was almost like I was being treated. And in my mind, I literally thought, oh, this is nice of him. At least he still cares kind of thing. Um, but I was just being, you know, prepped, basically. Yeah. And then also, you know, people were coming to the room. And as they were coming to the room, he would tell me things like, see, that's why I'm keeping you here. Not like the other girls, because there were other girls there, too, that were being trafficked. He was like, um, I'm not letting you out of here just, you know, like the other girls. I'm keeping you close to me because I care about you. And in my mind, I was, I agreed. I was like, well, at least, yeah, at least he's not putting me out because some of those girls went out in the night and never came back. So at least he's keeping me close because he still, he still cares about me. And it's crazy to even articulate that now. But when you understand the psychological hold that these manip, that these exploiters have on individuals, the psychological abuse is worse than the physical yeah. And so I was caught up in this fantasy that he that he cared. And so that ran out, you know, that ran dry. He was like, oh, at one point he was like, I'm going to keep you close in the room. But then he said money was we weren't making money fast enough. So he had to put me out. And so, yes, I was dropped off out um, to the what we call the blade or the track to walk the strip and make money. So I wasn't tied to the room, you know, when he dropped me off, a lot of people were like, well, why didn't you run then? But I'm telling you, it's the psychological abuse. Yeah. The fear. Yeah. It's the psychological chains. Yes. That hold yes. someone back. Yep. Yeah. It seems like one of the things that exploiters do in these situations based on the people that I've talked to is that they, you know, like you said, pick someone that's vulnerable and then they try to create these bonds, like these attachments with them and then exploit them. And I'm just wondering if like, while you were going through this process, did you begin to think like this was your family? 
like, was there comfort in this exploitation? There was, because I trusted him. He manipulated me to the point that he became my whole entire world. Like, he was, I knew, I just knew that he had my back. I just knew that even though I didn't understand what he was doing, that he still cared about me, that maybe he still loved me. Um, so, yeah, there was a, an extreme level of comfort. Yeah. How long were you in the life for? So that three months turned into almost a year of my life just being out there, and I lost completely lost sense of time. Uh, it wasn't until I exited that I realized how, you know, how long I was actually gone. I personally have never experienced this. I've never experienced trafficking, and I speculate that the transition out of the life of sex trafficking might be arguably the most challenging transition in life. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, first of all, like, do you think that's a fair statement being that you're a person who also is a mother, which is also one of the most challenging things in life? Would you say that? Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that wholeheartedly. What are some of the most challenging and unexpected aspects of transitioning out of the life of sex trafficking? Well, the first thing is understanding who you are as an individual, the individual that has just gone through this. It is really hard. And people think that, you know, the physical aspect of being trafficked, you know, once you get people out of that physical, that danger, right, then they can just be normal again. Like you're free now. You can just live life. Yeah. But that's not true because there are so many things that you have to like learn again. You have to learn who you are again. Number one, you have to try to process what the heck just happened to me. Yeah. Right. Um, it's so hard. And, and that, that alone, step one can take years, <laughs> literally. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then you have to figure out how to move in society again, like, you know, live and adapt to society, your, com- your community, your surroundings. What does that even look like? Because Honestly, from the lens of a survivor, when I first came out, I was like, you guys don't know what happened to me. And that's what I would say every day. And I was screaming from the inside, but no one would hear me, obviously. But when I would have conversations with quote unquote regular people, it was like, yeah, but you don't know what I've been through. You, you know, you have no idea what I just got out of, what I've just been through. And so it's so hard. So I think the defeating those psychological change that you talked about earlier is, if not the most difficult, definitely one of the most difficult things. Yeah. But because restoration and, you know, is a lifelong process, it's not an event, right? The process of exiting the lifestyle of trafficking is not an event. So it, it, it's not, it can't be, you can't rescue someone from that, right? You can't rescue anyone from that. It's like no one can do it for you. No one can Eventually. do it. Like we can, there can be facilitators. There can be facilitators, but it really is on the person, right? Because even to like, so individuals have like hotline numbers and stuff like that. Agencies have hotline numbers and stuff. And um, these courageous and amazing individuals go out to like, they go out to where there are trafficked individuals and they give them like a number. And if they call that number and they agree to leave, they're like, yeah, we rescued. No, actually that individual had to, it took a tremendous amount of courage for that person to say, you know what, I'm going to call this number knowing that I may 
there may be some consequences not knowing what may be the, on the other side of this number, not knowing oh, you know, yeah. where they're going to take me when they say that there's a house that can help me or there are people that help me, that can help me, not knowing who those people are. I'm going to be so courageous and show up for myself and call this number. That is someone getting their, their self out or even to make a choice to say, okay, I'll trust you. I'll trust you. You say that you have this amazing organization that can help me. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to make that choice to go with you. Yeah. That's a partnership at that point. Yeah. Well, I like that. Thanks for talking to that. Yeah. So how did you exit the life? For me, it was crazy. I used to say that you'll never believe how I got out. It's like a movie. But then I started hearing other survivors and overcomers. And I'm like, oh, we're all like movies. This is, this is typical. <laughs> <laughs> this is so typical. Um, every story is just so unique. But for me, there was an individual, um, there was a person, a young lady that was being trafficked as well in this kind of ring or this kind of group that um, my former trafficker had. And she had, she struggled with um, mental disorder. Um, and so she had, she was really activated at one point, um, to the point of what I used to call like a mental breakdown. I know that's not the right term, but like she was really acting out, um, because she was off her medicine or she was, I think really, I think what activated her was we would have secret conversations behind the traffickers back. And she confided in me how, you know, how she used to dream as a little girl of being like a singer and she had all these goals set up for herself. And then she realized, you know, I would speak to her like, we can't, we can't do this. Like, this is not our life. Like you, you deserve to do all the things that you used to dream of as a little girl. It's not okay that we're doing this. You know, even in my own stuff, I was just like, we got to get out of here. And I think that kind of activated, like just set something yeah. off. Um, Cause was, she was forced to, it was like a spark of motivation. Yeah, it was a spark of motivation and it kind of triggered her to understand like she was she had to face her reality mm -hmm. because living out there in the life you're 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 pretending. It's a facade, right? Um so I think her having to face that reality kind of sparked something and he you know, she started to act out like physically and they were fighting and she was screaming and bringing too much attention to the room. Let me just summarize and say that she was yeah. bringing too much attention to what was going on. She became a liability for the trafficker kind of she thing. She became a liability because, yeah. And so his thought was just to have her like get her into a hospital there and just leave her. And um, I convinced him that we should bring her back to Houston because that's where her medical team was. Like people that understand what she's dealing with and have been walking with her um, for years, they understand. And so we need to get her back there. And he he agreed to it. And I believe that he agreed to it because they also shared a child together. So he's this big, you know, music mogul to his family and to like all of the people that think, you know, that don't really know who he is. But then he's this big, big time trafficker to kind of like this other crowd that he appeases to. Yeah. And to compromise that to compromise those two and to to to, um, to make it like revealed to his family and her family what he was doing would just cost him everything and so he was like yeah okay fine we'll go back to Houston we'll get her into a hospital and then me and you will come back out or we'll go to Kansas or I forgot what city he was going to go to next with me um, well we got we got back to Houston crazy ride got back to Houston got her into a hospital and then I we were in a hotel room uh, just me and him 
and he was pretending like he was my boyfriend again, right? Just never mind all the things that he just put me through. He was just like very attentive, very caring. And speaking to the psychological bond, the trauma bond, I only wanted to be around him, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so I was like stuck to him like glue. But I think I started to have my own um, kind of reality check because I was back in my hometown and I had to see streets and freeways and highways and landmarks that were familiar to me. Mm -hmm. And they were disrupting my facade. They were disrupting Mm. who I had become to try to protect myself from my reality. And so I started freaking out as well. And then, you know, he allowed me in the midst of that breakdown to contact my brother and my sister-in-law who again just thought I was away for a job and they came and got me from the hotel room and they knew something was off but they didn't call it they didn't know it was trafficking they just thought okay Kathy is out here with her boyfriend her boyfriend called us because he called he got on the phone and was like yeah I don't know I just feel so scared for her and he was that loving person right to them yeah and so they came and got me and I just I never went back since. I always say that, just to be very clear, just because they came and got me doesn't mean that I had exited the life of trafficking because if given the opportunity, I would have gotten back. Like I said, he wanted to pick me up the next day to like travel and I would have been up for it. I would Because my moral compass, compass was completely broken down. My identity was stripped away. I just thought in my mind that I belonged to him. And so I would have absolutely gone back but he underestimated the the strength of my support system. Mm. So it was my family and my friends and those around me that disrupted his plans. So they were like, "No, Kathy, you're like skin and bones." And I was mute, like I wasn't talking to anyone. Oh wow! Um, and they were like, "Yeah, you can't, you can't go back with him. You're you're not, you're not doing this. We don't even know what happened to you." But you're not going back. So they didn't even have any information to like call police because I wasn't talking. They didn't know. It was just they stepped in in a big way. And that's what kept me from they stepped in long enough for me to kind of come to my own. Like, okay, what just happened? Maybe he's not a good boyfriend. You know, they stepped in long enough for me to try to process some of those things on my own. And that's what kept me out of the life. Not the fact that someone picked me up. Yeah. So when we look at people that run back, we have to we have to understand that that trauma bond is real. Yeah. I'm just wondering if like shame is one of the things that holds a person in the life that keeps them stuck in the life. Because if I speculate on your experience, I would imagine and tell me if I'm wrong, that you started to question yourself because you're like, how did I end up here? Like, is shame one of the chains, one of the psychological chains that holds a person stuck in trafficking? 100%. Yes. The shame that you have for yourself, but then you're always wondering what people think. It's like walking around with this label that says, you know, you don't know what I've been through. Like I've been through, you know, I'm dirty. I'm a part of this secret society that no one knows. And it's, it's like the fear of being judged. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you explain that? How do you explain that you know, even as an adult, we won't even talk about children, but even as an adult, like, how did I let this happen? How yeah. do you explain that to someone? We need to get rid of the stigmas because the right. stigmas are unhealthy. 
it's super important for the community. So we really need to work harder on not putting all of the onus on the survivor and the victim, but really preparing our communities yep. to to under to acknowledge that this happens Oof, amongst us. That. And that's one of the important steps is removing the stigmas from the communities and increasing acceptance and empathy. Yep, exactly. Wow. Well, as we come to the end of this conversation, I'm just wondering if you have a call to action for us as an organization, as Fight the New Drug. Just to keep doing what you're doing. I love that you, um, you're incorporating this with your mission and vision of what you guys do, like the tra- trafficking and pornography, obviously there is an intersection. It goes hand in hand. You can't talk about one without talking about the other. Many, many individuals are trafficked through pornography. And so um, really elevating these conversations and making it make sense to people. So even like when you said, hey, I don't want the federal definition of trafficking, but allowing me space to speak truth right to what it really is from the raw perspective of overcomers and survivors so that just keep doing what you're doing and i value it and i honor it so thank you okay and then what about for our listeners do you have a call to action for them yes get involved (laughs) you have to have these uncomfortable conversations Um, if you don't have uncomfortable conversations then you're you're being complicit and i love what you said about you know your weakness earlier on in the conversation i think that that's amazing you you acknowledge that it's uncomfortable and you don't know what to do but you got to start somewhere so my ask for the community and for the listeners is to find out what organizations exist in your community that are fighting trafficking and working to end trafficking call them and and attend a webinar see how you can volunteer Get involved, get the material and the resources that you need to facilitate these conversations in your families and with your children and in your commu- your own um, circles, right? And so that you can get involved. Yeah. And then we also want to know what we can do to support you. Follow all of the work that we are doing at 1211 Partners on Instagram and LinkedIn and Facebook and all of the things. And just follow us and and you and keep updated on all the work that we're doing. We really walk alongside um, overcomers of trafficking. So our ask changes daily because we do not have a cookie cutter program. It's seriously individualized. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you just follow us, you'll be updated. And then you can follow me at Kat Givens and all of the, the things um, that I'm involved in, in bringing and spreading awareness uh, to everyone. Awesome. Well, I love that you take an individualized, like more custom approach to that. So that's awesome. We'll include the links to all the things you mentioned in the episode notes so that the listeners can easily find you. Um, I just want to leave you with the opportunity to have the last word during this conversation. So if you have anything that's, you know, unexpressed thoughts, we'd love to hear those before we come to an end. Sure. Trafficking does not discriminate, right? There's no one... A particular group or demographic that it that it targets and it targets vulnerabilities not necessarily people it looks for vulnerabilities and it targets them but if we equip our communities to be more aware and to accept that wrong happens within our own communities right then we are equipping ourselves to fight trafficking and like I said earlier if it can end for one because it ended for me so if it can end for one it can end for all so it is possible to end trafficking 
Well, Kathy, thanks for joining us today on the podcast. I mentioned it already, but I, w- I want to say it again. Like these conversations mean so much to me and to us as an organization. And you are a powerhouse. You're 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 amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much again for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Help us hashtag stop the demand for pornography and sexual exploitation. This July, during our hashtag stop the demand campaign, you can support our efforts to create and share educational resources that educate individuals on how the porn industry fuels the demand for exploitation, sex trafficking, objectification, and more. Plus, when you donate $50 or more during the month of July, we'll give you an exclusive stop the demand tote as a free gift. Donate today at ftnd.org forward slash donate. That's ftnd.org forward slash donate. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Consider Before Consuming. Consider Before Consuming is brought to you by Fight the New Drug. Fight the New Drug is a non-religious and non-legislative organization that exists to provide individuals the opportunity to make an informed decision regarding pornography by raising awareness on its harmful effects using only science, facts, and personal accounts. If you'd like to learn more about today's guest and the conversation we had, you can check out the links included with this episode. Again, big thanks to you for listening to this conversation. As you go about your day, we invite you to increase your self-awareness, look both ways, check your blind spots, and consider before consuming. 